All right, let's go ahead and pray and ask God to bless our time together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the privilege and the joy of being able to come together as a group to study Your Word and to grow in Your grace and truth. Your Word is truth. And Lord, You know every man and woman in this room. You know each and every one of us. You know all of our struggles. You know our fears, our doubts, our hopes, our dreams. You know where we stand with You. And my prayer is that everyone here does know You as Lord and Savior. Uh, I also pray that if there be someone here who is struggling to believe You, that You will use the power of Your Word and Your Spirit to open their heart to the beautiful truth of eternal salvation. Um, Please be with the folks here. Be with their families back home. Um, Separation is a tough thing to deal with. Um, Stepping out of one lifestyle and into another lifestyle is also something that's very tough to deal with. So we need You, Lord. We need Your Holy Spirit to comfort us, to guide us, to empower us, and to give us the strength and the ability and the will to do the things that You require. And so we ask You now to be with us in this time of study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, so the um, piece of paper that I handed to you is an excerpt. Um, it's an um, excerpt from something called the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is not Scripture. It's called a creed. And if any of y'all are familiar with... Uh, you need one, Joan? You got your hand raised? Okay. For any of you that's not familiar, the word creed comes from the Latin credo. And it means I believe. Anybody in here Catholic? I got any Catholic folks in here? Don't be ashamed. Yeah. All right. So you you are known as a pedo Baptist. What that means is, as a child, when you were still a baby, they baptized you into the church. You were a pedo Baptist. I am a credo Baptist. The word credo, creed, credo. I believe. So we get baptized after we make a profession of faith. That's what the term credo Baptist means. So this creed, what happens is. All through the history of the church from the time of the apostles to today, there is constantly heresies being propelled into the church. False teachings. And so what these creeds have done is some of the... Remember, God promises us the gift of uh, teachers and pastors. Uh, And so these teachers and pastors throughout history have gotten together and through prayer and through seeking guidance of the Holy Spirit have taken the Bible... And they've basically put into statements the the beliefs of the church. And so what what you'll see in this passage that you're looking at that I handed out to you tonight is a creedal statement. This is not Scripture. But if you will also notice beside it, in the footnotes, it'll point you to a Scripture so that you can go to the Bible. And so I'm saying, this is what I believe, and the reason I believe it is because it is biblical. Creeds can fail you. Creeds are human inventions. Alright? But the Word of God will never fail you. And so, I am firmly convinced as a Reformed Baptist that the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith is a good, solid, creedal statement. Alright? Some people, if you're in here and you go to a Presbyterian, Terry and Presbyterian in there? Uh, no Presbyterian? Alright, if you're a Presbyterian, you would, you would adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you were a Lutheran, it's the Augsburg Confession. Uh, And so all of the different denominations have their confession. This is the one that I personally adhere to. And so when I teach from it, I teach because it sums up in small, uh, clear statements what we believe as Christians. And so I'm not asking you to take my creed as your creed. I'm asking you to take my creed and test it with the Bible that you have in your lap. And see what the Bible says and ask God to use the Bible to show you what is true. 
if something I'm teaching in here is not in the Bible or not truth, then you do not listen to me. Okay? It is the Scriptures that is the foundation of our faith. It is the Scriptures that saves you. It is the promise of God, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God that brings you salvation. And it is the Word and the power and the Spirit of God that will sanctify you, conform you to the image of Christ. And so you need the Word of God. And so the reason I use this credo statement is because it's a good way for me to come in and take some things that we believe in the church for uh, 2,000 years and put them into a clear, decisive statement. Last time, now with that said, really quickly, I'm going to quit running off these copies of this, but I'm going to offer each and every one of you in this room, I'm going to go and buy, I can buy printed copies of uh, my credo, my confession, they're for five bucks, they're nice little printed books. And from now on when I come, I'm going to offer you the opportunity to win one of those books. All you've got to do is come here and sit on this bench and uh, say the 66 books of the Bible in order before you appear. And if you can say all of the books of the Bible, I'll give you a copy of it. I'll bring copies to loan out to you so you can use them during class. But if you want one for yourself, memorize all 66 books. Can you buy it? Huh? Can you buy it? Yeah, if you want to buy it. Yeah, you can buy it if you don't want to memorize it. Right? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, they have to be in it. Yeah. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, and Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It's got to be like in that order. So it's all 66 books. There's little songs that you can memorize to learn it. Like I, I literally have used it with children, like six and seven year old kids. I can give them a song, and in, in three days they can sing the whole. They can sing every, all the books of the Bible. So it's not that hard if you really want to do it, and you really should know where they are because um, as a Christian, as a profession child of a professing child of God, it looks really bad when your preacher says, turn to the book of uh, Zechariah, and you have to go to the table of contents to find out where it is. Right? right? You, it, it's your sword, and you should know how to wield it. And so <clears throat> that's why I want to do that. Um, I actually remember uh, it was Tony... I had a kid one time did it. I gave him a Bible, a really nice leather Bible. He did it. Uh, what was that child's name? Married the girl. And they... Rafe. No, it wasn't Rafe. Did Rafe get married? Yeah, yeah you got two that's, kids now. Too. That's fantastic. Good for Rafe. Uh, so- Socia, Randall Socia. Yeah, Randy did it, and he got a nice Bible. So next time I come next Friday, I'll have those books with you. If you want to sit up here and do it, please do. Uh, just something to challenge you to to get your nose in the Bible a little more. So tonight, um, we're going to continue on what we continued last time we were together, last month when we were together. For those of you who are not here, I'm going to quickly review what we talked about, and then we're going to jump into... Uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. So, we're in chapter 8 of the Creedal Confession, and chapter 8 discusses Christ, our mediator. Christ, our mediator. What does the word Christos mean, or Christ? Who knows? Who? Christ centered. Christ, well, we, we, it is Christ centered. That's a word that you heard from last time, and I'm glad that you remember it. That's amazing. The word Christos, or Christ, means the anointed one, it means the one that God appointed to come and save us. So Jesus is His earthly name, just like His name in Hebrew would be what? What's Jesus' name in Hebrew? Jesus' name. Joshua. Good. Very good. You said that. You said that? Good. Joshua. So if you read the book of Joshua, that's where Jesus' name comes from. It means The term means Savior. Right? So Jesus is His earthly name. And Jesus Christ, Christos, means He is the one appointed by God to come and save us. And Lord, what does it mean when we call Him Lord? We've talked about this in the past. What does it mean when you call Him Lord? You say He's Lord of your life. 
I'll give you a. a, a he, Lord, he is God, he's God. That it definitely means that. When you was a kid, you was on the playground, and your friend wanted to do something that you didn't want to do. You say, "I'm not doing that." You're not the what? Boss. You're not the boss of me. That's exactly right. When you call him Lord, if you really mean it, you're saying he's the boss. I'm a slave, and he's my master. Right? I know slavery doesn't have a very nice connotation in today's terms, but the reality is, is that Paul, in almost all of his epistles, says Paul, the bond servant, slave of Christ. So if you call Him Lord, that means He's the boss of you. So Jesus is earthly name. Christos means He's the anointed one. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? And so, uh, any of y'all know the uh, Apostles' Creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was received the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended in heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, right? Okay. So that's a creedal statement. That's called the Apostles' Creed. That was what the apostles taught. That was the basis of what the apostles were preaching. So when you read the Bible, that Apostles' Creed sums up a statement of what we believe as Christians. Okay. And so <clears throat> we are talking in specific about the fact that Jesus Christ is the mediator. I've been calling these classes Christology 101, right? This is going to be Christology 101B. And so we're going to do a class tonight, and we're going to continue to talk about Christ because He, the, all of the Bible is, use your word again, Christocentric. That is a very fancy term, and you can impress your friends with it, right? What does the term egocentric mean? If someone is egocentric, it's they're self-centered. That's exactly right. Centricism means centered. So egocentric, ego is I, that means it's all about me. Christocentric means it's all about Christ. The earth rotates around the sun. It is heliocentric. It's centered on the sun. Okay? Your life should be Christocentric. It should revolve around Christ. Same way the earth revolves around the sun, your life should revolve around Christ and what He does. Right? Unfortunately, Adam fell and we flipped it on his head. And now it's about who? It's about me. And so one of the reasons I'm teaching this class is because I want us to get back focused on the fact that all of Scripture is Christocentric. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus. It's about Him. right? So in the garden, when Adam and Eve fell, and God promised that one day He would send the seed of the woman and that she would crush the serpent's head, He would bruise His heel and He would crush His head. It was the fact that one day a woman was going to have a baby that was going to crush the serpent's head. Now, who is that baby that crushed the serpent's head? Jesus. Jesus. How did He crush the serpent's head? He died on the cross. He took all of the serpent's poison and turned it around and turned it into life. See? And so all of the Bible, from Genesis all the way, all of those 66 books that I know all of y'all are going to have memorized next week, every one of those books is about Jesus. All of the Scriptures is about Him. And so our life should be centered in Him. So that's why this class is kind of important. So when we were together last time, we, let's go ahead and look at a verse of Scripture uh, to go ahead and get started. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5. And I'm cheating. I've already got these verses all pulled up and, and footnoted, so I don't have to be as quick as you do. But 1 Timothy 2.5. It says, Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. Alright? 
Therefore, let me make sure I got that right again. Am I reading that right? No. No? no. That sounds like a Hebrews passage instead of a... a sec- there is one God and one mediator also between God there and There we go. Man, Christ Jesus. Read that out loud so everybody can hear. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. All right. There is one mediator between God and man. All right. There's some churches that teach you you've got to go through a priest or you've got to go through one of the dead saints to get to God. The only person you need to get to God is God Himself. God loved us. He sent His Son down here to become what we are so that we could know who He is. All right? He clothed Himself in humanity and walked among us so that we could know Him. And He still intercedes for us today. Let me get that, let me get that passage up myself. So I can look at it real quick. It's First Timothy two five, right? Yes. Two five. It says, "For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus." All right. Let me ask you this: Do you think that Paul is saying right there that is the one God and the one mediator two different people? No. Yes. Two persons. One being. Right? There's one God and one being. Now remember, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are three persons. Three persons, one being. God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Spirit, and God the Spirit is not God the Father. They are three persons, but they are all God. Now, the reason you and I have a hard time figuring that out is because we're not God. And if we could figure it out, if we could understand the Trinity, then we would be gods. The clay can't figure out who the potter is or how he made him. He's just clay and he just does what he's told. You see? So, God is one being and three persons. And so let's look at that passage again with that Trinitarian statement in mind. There is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men. So you see how it could be one God, three persons. God the Father sent God the Son who died on the cross to save us. After He died, they buried Him in a grave. What happened three days later? He ascended and rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the quick and the dead. But God is with us right now at this very moment, is He not? God the Father, God the Son sent God the Holy Spirit to teach us about Him. And so now, if you are a born-again, blood-bought child of God, the Spirit of God lives in you. And now the reason you can read the Bible and understand it is because God's Spirit, the one that breathed those words out, the very author of those words lives in you. You see how that works? And before you're saved, before you're born again, before you're a believer, it don't make any sense. It's only after we repent, after we turn, after He gives us a new heart, after we were regenerated, after we turn from sin itself and turn back to Christ, that even the Scriptures make sense. Right? And He is our mediator. So He's he, uh, this whole uh, passage that we've been talking about tonight, this whole topic is about the fact that He's our mediator. Now, last time we were together, in this entire creedal statement we're going to see nine things that we're going to prove 
One, God chooses Jesus to save sinners. That was what we talked about when we were together last time. God chooses Jesus to save sinners. Tonight, we're going to look at the second point and the third point. The second point is, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And we're also going to look at number three, Jesus as mediator. Alright, so we're going to try to get through those two tonight. We probably won't. We never get through with any topic that we talk about, but we're going to try. Um, The other points that you will see in this creedal statement, Jesus' atoning work. That's what He did on the cross. Right? It's very important to understand. What did Paul say? I don't want to know anything but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because it is Jesus' work on the cross that saves us. And so, it is very important for us to understand what He did when He hung on that cross. What is the atonement at one minute? Atonement is at one minute. It's being one with God. He brings us into a fellowship with Him through that, that death on the cross. Alright? So, we're going to talk about His atoning work. We're going to talk about Jesus' accomplished reconciliation. When He died on the cross, He said, It is finished. He didn't say, Okay, now it's up to you. He said, It is finished. That means that the redemption was accomplished on the cross. It is being applied today, but it was accomplished at that very moment. It is finished. Nothing left to be said. Mic drop. All right? We're going to talk about Christ fully saves everyone that He died for. We're going to talk about Jesus as the only Savior and mediator. And we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king. So in the next coming weeks, that's the thing we'll talk about. I will see you all again next Friday and we'll get into another subject. But tonight we're going to look, I gave you all I think two and three. So let's look at two. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. God is one being. God is three persons. Let's say that with me. God is one being. God is three persons. Who are the three persons of the Trinity? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now the fact that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity is a statement saying that He is what? He's the right hand man. right? But He's God. Right? You can have fellowship with any people outside of the church. You can sit down and have dinner with a Muslim, you can sit down and have dinner with a Jew, you can sit down and have dinner with a uh, Jehovah Witness, you can sit down and have dinner with a Mormon. And you will have a wonderful dinner, and you can actually talk about Jesus and how wonderful He was. Even the Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, okay? And you can talk about all of the wonderful miracles He did, and and most of those groups will say, Amen, Amen. They will not deny the fact that He did miracles. They will not deny the fact that He was a prophet of God. But when you bring up the statement and say He is God, that is when you are going to be disfellowshipped. That's when they're going to step away. That is the one difference in Christianity and every religion out there. The one difference is this. Christianity, all of the religions out there teach you this is what you do to get to God. Why do those uh, other religions um, 
think that he's not God if he rose up three days later and broke out of the tomb? Well, the simple answer is unbelief. They don't believe it. The difficult answer is, is that their hearts have been hardened. They have they rejected God's truth and God has turned them over to their own hardness, their own callousness, and they refuse to believe. Do these people agree that the veil is split in half and that like, you know, the ground shook? Some do, some don't. So, see, now you've got to understand, so let's take it from the perspective of a Jew. The, a Jewish man every morning gets up and pronounces something called the Shema. It's the Lord your God is one God. You shall have no other gods before Him. All right. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever heard that before? Right? Well, that's because it comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Where do you think Jesus got it from? Remember when Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, and John were preaching the Gospel, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians to turn to to preach out of. They were preaching the Gospel from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Proverbs, Isaiah, Psalms. That's where they preach the gospel from. And for you, if you ever get into a church and somebody tells you, oh, well, the Old Testament don't matter anymore, you're in the wrong place. That's good. Yeah. Yes? You're the second person that said that. Yeah. You're the second person that said that. Good. Actually, I'm not the second person that said it. A lot of people should be saying it. But even some very. Uh, well-known evangelists and preachers for, with giant congregations yeah, says we should unhitch from the Old Testament. We don't need that anymore. But the reality is, is those are the promises of God just as much as the New Testament. That's that right. And if you if you notice, so you know, so think about the uh, the red letter Christian. What is a red letter Christian? What is the red letters in the Bible? Where's Jesus from? So they'll tell you, I'm a red letter Christian. I just listen to what Jesus said. But the entire Bible is what Jesus said. Every bit of it. Amen. You see, and so. That's why it's very important that we stick to the scriptures and understand that all of the scriptures teach us of God. But you can no, so getting back to the subject, you can understand why a Jew would have a hard time with somebody coming saying he's a man saying he's God. Because he's been taught all of his life the Lord your God is one God. And you shall have no other God before him. See? I but then Jesus can take those various scriptures and stump the Jewish people with it. He, he said something like this. He went to that book of Psalms, Psalm 110, and he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit down on my right hand. Okay, that's a psalm. And he asked the Jews, he said, Who is the Messiah? And we're going to see this in a minute if we get to it. And they said, It's David's son. Is that true? Yes. The Messiah is David's son. His great, 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 great grandson. So the Jews believed that their Messiah would be a son of David. Why did they believe that? Because the scriptures prophesied that Jesus was going that the Messiah was going to be a son of David. So Jesus took their script, the scriptures of the Jewish people, and he said, "Hey, who is the son of David? Or who is the Messiah?" They said, "He's the son of David." And Jesus said this. 
He said, well, why did David say in Psalm, in the Psalm, now they didn't have Psalm numbers back then. They didn't have chapters and verses back then. But he said, why did David say, the Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand? He said, why did David call him Lord if it's his son? Are y'all with me? David called this Messiah Lord. And Jesus asked the people, He said, why is He calling Him Lord if He's His Daddy? And it said from that time on, they asked Him no more questions. Like, He's stumped. The, <clears throat> the Sadducees was a group of Jews that did not believe in the bodily resurrection. They did not believe in life after death. They believed this is all you got. Well, Jesus said to them, He said, hey, He says, when Yahweh... Jehovah, the covenant keeping, promise keeping creator of the universe, spoke to Moses out of the bush. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He said, so God is the God of the living, not the dead. Now, what is Jesus saying in that statement? He's speaking to Moses. And he says to Moses, the God, the God, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus said to the people that didn't believe in resurrection after life after death, he said, He said, I, He is the God of the living, not the dead. So what is the implication there? Well, first of all, Moses is 400 years after Abraham. So where is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now? They're in heaven. Now she's acting right. But Jesus said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am. You see what he's saying? They're alive. They're still alive. Moses is 400 years after them. And so what he's doing is he's going back, and these Jews were very specific with the Scriptures. They didn't change one jot or one tittle. And so what he's going back to, he's going back and saying, look at the tense that God was speaking to Moses from. He was speaking from the present tense. That's your Scriptures. And he's saying, I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. God is the God of the living, not the dead. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive. There's there's life after death. See, but Jesus goes back to the Scriptures to confute and refute them. And so, you can understand from the Jewish perspective that they would have a hard time understanding that Jesus is now claiming to be God when God is only one. What is it they can't grasp? They can't grasp the personages of God. All they see is the being. Was the Holy Spirit around in the Old Testament? Only for kings and priests. Yes. Well, what about when Moses and them were prophesying and they they ran over to and said, hey, who was those guys' name? Eldad and somebody. They were in the camp prophesying. You want us to go over there and tell them to shut up? And what did Moses say? No, I wish every one of you had the Holy Spirit to prophesy. I wish everybody in this whole camp could speak to lift God up. Me, Dad, and El- I forget their name now. It's been a while since I've read that story. 
But the prophets and the priests, the priests all and the Levites all ran to Moses like, hey, the Spirit of God has come down on the camp over there and those guys are over there prophesying. You want us to go over there and tell them to shut up? And what did Moses say? No. He said, I wish everybody in this whole camp was prophesying. So you have to understand that the Holy Spirit is God. And He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. And He's everlasting. And He's always been working the same way. He convicted Abraham. The whole, and remember, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him for righteousness. That's what it says in Genesis like 15 or 17. What does that mean? Abraham believed God and God counted it to him towards righteousness. What, what does that mean? Not only was he obedient, he believed God. He had faith. Well, what did he have faith in? God's promise. The Word. And we know that the only way that a person can believe God's Word is if the Spirit of God is at work in them. So in order for Abraham to believe and have faith, the Holy Spirit had to be at work in Abraham's life. Yeah. Our image. Our image. Okay. So, let's see where we were. So, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. The Son of God is the second person of the Holy Trinity and is fully and eternally God. Now, why is that important? He's fully God, but what is so important about the fact that Jesus is eternally God? We'll see if we can't. Answer that way as we look at this paragraph. But he intercedes for us forever. Huh? He intercedes for us forever. But he also interceded for Adam and Cain or Abel and and yeah. Jesus did? Yes. That's complicated. That's way before Jesus would ever come into play. Okay, good. Whoa, whoa, okay, let you go. Here he said that's complicated because that was before Jesus came in the flesh. Alright, so let's go to some scripture and see what we can find. Let's go to John 1. Alright? Everybody there? John 1, 1. In the what? Beginning was the Word. What, what beginning? In the beginning. The first six days. In the beginning. All right. So, during before creation, yes. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who was in the beginning with God? God, the Word. The Word was with God. Let's look at it again. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. How can he be with God and was God? Because he's everything. Good. All right. So now watch what you said. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was not made. Who who is they talking about here? God. The Word. What does the Word look like? Well, let's go back all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and without form. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be this. And God said, now how do you say things? 
Were words, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made away. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. All right. All right. Verse nine. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. When? In the beginning. He was in the world. Who? The Word. He was in the world. Verse 10. And the world was made through Him. Who made the world? Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus made the world. Let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's Jesus. Jesus. Alright, now watch. Look. He was in the world. Verse 10. The world was made through Him, and yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own. To His own people, but they did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And watch this, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus, okay, so now let's go back to my creedal statement. What does it say? Jesus is fully and eternally God. What does that mean? He's always been God. Now, there was a mystery involved in that. And all through the Old Testament, that mystery was not revealed. But when you get into the New Testament, the mystery becomes real. Now remember, when you read in the New Testament and you hear Paul talking about the word mysterion, mysteries, he's not talking about like something that Scooby and Shaggy have to solve. A mystery in the New Testament is something that in the past was revealed, but now it has been made manifest. Like, it's not a mystery anymore. It was a mystery in the past, but now it has been revealed. Well, how has it been revealed? Because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, revealed it. He is. The, let's look at our statement again. He is the brightness of the Father's glory. He is of the same substance as the Father. Uh, we're looking at number two, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. We're on the third dot. He is the same substance as the Father and equal with the Father who made the world. He sustains and governs everything that He made. Right? Which is everything. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the reform statement is there's not one radical molecule in the entire universe. Right. He, formed he formed it all. He controls it all. Nothing catches him by surprise. He's in charge of every atom, every molecule, Every puff of wind, every flash of light. He made it all. He controls it all. All right. Now let's look at our paragraph, and then we'll we're gonna have to get, really read kind of quickly, and then get we want to get through some of these scriptures to prove what we're saying here. All right. So he says this: at the proper time, he took on human nature, along with all of its essential properties and common weaknesses. Remember when he's sitting at the well with the woman? What did he say? Yeah, and when he was on the cross, what did he say? He said, I what? Thirst. 
he gets thirsty. He's a human being. He gets thirsty. He got tired. Remember when he was in the boat and all the disciples thought they were drowning? And he, where was he? He was in the back of the boat asleep on a boat cushion, right, in the middle of a storm. Why? Why was he asleep? He's human. He was tired. He'd been preaching all day long. He pre- preached all day. He was tired. He was asleep. He gets tired. He gets sad. He looked over Jerusalem and wept. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have taken your children under my wings, but you would not have it. And he cried. He wept over that city because he knew in 70 AD it was going to be destroyed. He knew that after that city rejected him as their Messiah, that Rome was going to come in and destroy him. And it broke his heart. Remember what he said? He was going across. Don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. The judgment's coming. So, <clears throat> he had all of our common weaknesses except sin. Why was it so important that Jesus was born of a virgin? Divinity. That was fast. That was, good. That was pretty cool. That was Mr. Miyagi like was catching up. All right. So I didn't have chopsticks, but I did catch the fly. What, why, what, what is so relevant about that? Why was it so important that he be born of a virgin? Because every son of Adam was under a curse. All of Adam's children are under the curse. Not only that, but in Genesis 3.15 it said the seed of a woman would crush the servant's head. Not the seed of a man. I got news for you. This is a breaking news. Every person in this room was born from the seed of a man. Alright? Every one of us. There's not a single one of us in this room, right? You weren't born from the seed of a watermelon or an eggplant. You were born from the seed of a man. You were begotten of a man. That's what the word begot means. Alright? You begot. Alright? And women women and men get together and beget kids. And a woman and a man don't get together and beget ducks or frogs or chickens or geese. They can't do it. They made babies. And a man and a woman can't get together and beget God, can they? What does that take? That takes the seed of God, doesn't it? The one. The one. The seed. See? Who is the seed of God? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but ever last and that was why it was important that he was born in play, uh, a woman. You said the seed of a woman was going to come to Yes, that's Genesis 3.15. That's the first prophecy of the coming of Jesus in all of the Bible. That's why it's so important. God promised Adam and Eve that one day a woman was going to have a baby that was going to crush her. It was going to be the seed of a woman. Genesis Way a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 1,400 years or so before Jesus was born. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, all right. So, why, so, look again. He was born of common weaknesses except for sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary when the Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Overshadowed her. He was born from a woman of the tribe of Judah and was a descendant of Abraham and David according to the Scriptures. According to the what? Scriptures. So it's very important. He had to be from the tribe of Judah. He had to be a descendant of Abraham and David. Why is that so important? Well, because God promised Abraham that one day your seed would bless all the nations. So the seed had to come from who? Abraham. 
And not only that, but He is King of kings. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And what's, what, what is important for someone to be a king? It's a, it's a genealogical thing. Isn't it? So not only did He have to come from Abraham, and not only did He have to come from the tribe of Judah, but He had to come from the line of David in order to be qualified to be king. Now, Jesus can never serve as a priest in the temple. So, if the Jews happen to... They're not going to, but... Well, they may build it, but... If they were to reinstate the old Jewish system and go and rebuild that temple over there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Jesus would not be qualified to go in there and offer sacrifices in that temple. You know why? Because only the Levites... And only somebody from the tribe of Levi is qualified to do that. Jesus couldn't go. Jesus from the tribe of Judah. He would not be allowed to go in and offer sacrifices in the temple. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that Jesus' priesthood is a higher priesthood than the priesthood of Levi. You know why? He said because when Melchizedek came running out and met Abraham... Abraham blessed Melchizedek. And it is always the higher person that gets the blessing. You see? And so this is what he said. While Levi was still in the loins of Abraham, Melchizedek received a blessing from Abraham. So in a sense, Levi is giving a blessing to Melchizedek. Why? Because Melchizedek is a higher priest. So Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. He's of a higher priesthood. And that priesthood doesn't need a temple, and that priesthood, well, it doesn't need a physical temple on the Mount of Jerusalem. Right? He don't need that. All right, so, okay, we're about finished. Settle down, we're about finished. He said it's time to go play. All right, so... When the Holy Spirit came down upon her, she, he was born of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. In this way, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. He's begotten of the Father. What side would that be? His, his fleshly side or his godly side? And he is also of the tribe of David and Judah and Abraham. That's flesh. And so those two natures were joined together. It says, in this way, two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. One nature never converts into the other, and the two natures are completely pure and unmixed. This person is fully God and fully human at the same time and one Christ. He is the only mediator between God and humanity. Alright? So I'm going to read that whole statement one more time. Then quickly, I know y'all want your donuts. We quickly we're going to go through a couple of verses of scripture to prove what we said tonight. Okay? Again, at the proper time, Jesus took on a human nature. This is something that we as Christians have to believe. Alright? There's a group of people called the Docetists. The term Docetist uh, means uh, it, it seems that way. It appears that way. And like a Muslim, the Muslims believe that there was a, a ghost of Jesus hanging on the cross, but Jesus was up sitting on a mountainside laughing at the Jews down there 
nailing a ghost to the cross. It only seemed like they were nailing a real man to the cross when in reality it was just an angel. He seemed like there. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is is that Adam is the one that we, we fell in Adam and it was Adam that has to get us out of that predicament. But no son of Adam was able to do that, was he? He had to be both God and man. All right? You talk to a Jehovah Witness, they'll tell you that Jesus is the uh, Archangel Michael. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. He's the Archangel Michael. Well, the problem with that is that's a docetic philosophy. He's a spirit. He's not really a man. He's an angel. Well, the problem with that is angels don't bleed. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. He had to be a man. He had to bleed. He had to die. Was Jehovah's just twist Scripture around? Yeah, well, they, yeah, they reword it. Alright, so... <coughs> At the proper time, He took on human nature along with all of His essential properties and common weaknesses except sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the wound of the Virgin Mary when the Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. He was born from a woman of the tribe of Judah and was a descendant of Abraham and David according to the Scriptures. In this way, two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. One nature never converts into another, and the two natures are completely pure and unmixed. This person is fully God and fully human, and at the same time, one Christ. He is the only mediator between God and humanity. Alright? That's our creedal statement. That's the statement I'm making, and I'm saying this is the facts. This is what the Bible teaches. So real quickly, let's look at We've already looked at a couple of those passages. John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Alright, let's look at that Galatians 4.4 passage. Galatians 4.4. Are y'all with me? Are y'all finding where I'm pulling these verses from so that you can go ahead and jump to the next one? Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman born under the law to redeem those that were under the law. So Jesus was born of a woman. Why is that important? Because it was a woman's seed that was going to crush the serpent's head and He had to be a man. And Jesus is the only person that was ever born that was conceived without consummation. Alright. Okay. You with me? Alright. So, next, Romans 8.3. Romans 8.3. Get over here. Alright, Romans 8.3 says, He condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8.3. He condemned sin in the flesh. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Is the law a bad thing? No, it's the perfect express will of God. It's not the law that is bad. It is our flesh that is incapable of keeping the law that is bad. We're not under the law, but the law is still God's express will. Are, are you still? Does He still command you as a child of God to honor your parents? Yes. 
Sure. To not steal, to not kill? Okay, so are you, as a Christian, are you required to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Yes. yes. All right, well, the Ten Commandments are the definition of what that looks like. So, you are not under the condemnation of the law. Because we can get, receive forgiveness. We can't receive forgiveness through the law. Because we can't, we can't, yeah, we can't through Christ. It's the only way we can do that. So the law is not a bad thing. The problem with the law is our ability to keep it. Okay. So the the Ten Commandments are still alive and well, and they should still convict us of sin. If I lie, I am going against the express will of God. That commandment should now, as a child of God, be written on my heart. And if I lie, it should convict me. It won't send me to hell. But if I truly am a child of God, it's going to convict me and turn me back to Christ to find forgiveness for that and to not do it anymore, to find strength not to do it. Alright, so, look at that verse again. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. So, so how did Jesus come? In the likeness of what? Sinful flesh. He was not sinful. He did not have a sin nature. But He had flesh. He bled. He got tired. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He wept. Good. He's 100% God and 100% man. And the Scriptures are showing us that He's a man. Alright? Uh, let's look at that Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 2.14 says... Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, uh, that is the devil. Alright, so what does it say? He partook of flesh and blood. So, if a Jehovah Witness comes to you and says, Jesus is Michael the archangel, what is the problem with that? Angels are spirits. They do not have flesh and blood. So to say that he is Michael the archangel is a direct contradiction of what the scripture says. The scripture says he's a man. Flesh and blood. Alright? Uh, let's look at uh, let's go to that uh, we've already done first Timothy two five. One more verse and we'll be done. Let's look at that Hebrews two um, verses fourteen, and then we're gonna look at verses sixteen through seventeen. We'll finish up here. Alright, so let's go back to Hebrews 2.14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for sins. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Alright, so I want to finish with this statement and then we're done. Look what it said. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, are any of you in this room Jewish? No. We're Gentiles. 
We're not the offspring of Abraham. But He came to help the offspring of Abraham. What does that mean? Remember that it is through Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. Who came through Abraham? Jesus. Right? And so to be a child of Abraham, this what this is pointing to is a person who has the faith of Abraham. Remember what he said? He said, we have Abraham for our father. And what did Jesus say to him? If you, if, if Abraham was your father, you would have do the work of Abraham. He saw me and believed. You see what? It, now, those Jews that said that, they said, those Jews that said to Jesus, "We have Abraham for our father," they weren't lying. Physically, they were Abraham's descendants. But what did Jesus say? You're not Abraham's kids. If you were Abraham's kids, he said, "You are of your father, the devil." If you were Abraham's children, you'd do the same thing he did. He saw me and believed. So what does it mean to be a child of Abraham? A believer. Huh? A believer. Oh, someone who has the faith of Abraham. There's a song they sing in the Presbyterian church that said, uh, <clears throat> Abraham had many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand, left hand, left foot. You remember that song? Right? Well, what it's saying is the faith... It's not talking... So all of these little Christian children that are singing that in church, they're not singing that they're Jews. They say they have the faith of Abraham. Because that's what makes you a child of God. It's the faith of Abraham. Now, did anybody before Abraham have a saving faith? Yes. All the believers. Enoch, Abel, Adam. Enoch. Right. right? So, let's finish up with this. Let's close with a word of prayer. So, what do we learn today? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Next time we come back together, we'll talk more about Jesus being the mediator. I hope that all of you have learned something from this. I hope that each and every one of you will be challenged to take these papers and go back into those Scriptures and see why the statement was made and what the Scriptures is actually pointing to and what it's saying. Because it will help you in your faith to understand your Savior. As you grow in your knowledge of Scripture, you will grow in your knowledge of your Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You for this time together. Thank You for this night. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus. And uh, I just ask that You use these words, uh, Your words tonight, to bless us all. Help us to grow in our and our willingness and uh, ability to be light for you in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.